The other investigator I met with was Dr. Hai Muss, who reviewed many of the supportive care issues in systemic therapy of breast cancer, and one that transcends the many ER and HER2 disease subsets is the use of anthracyclines in earlier stage disease and the long-term threat of cardiomyopathy and leukemia and MDS. To begin, Dr. Musk commented on a 62-year-old woman who received adjuvant chemotherapy about six years ago. She had a high-risk node-positive breast cancer, and at that time, we elected to treat her with VEC100 for six cycles. I routinely do MUGA scans before I put any patient on anthracyclines, irrespective of age. I know at least one JCO study that found maybe about 1% of people who we think are in pristine health actually have some decrease in ejection fraction. Her ejection fraction was fine, and I treated her. She did fine with the chemotherapy. She also went on endocrine therapy. And about a year and a half later, I got called one morning by her that she had been in the emergency room over the weekend in congestive heart failure. And she really had no cardiac risk factors. She didn't have hypercholesterolemia, had no history of heart disease. And I was rather surprised, but it was very real. And she was successfully treated. She was on diuretics and other medications for a heart failure and did very well. And over several years, it became a minimal problem. But about a year or so ago, she had a little bit of exacerbation of her heart failure, just kind of out of the blue. But her lifestyle was good. Once she was treated, she was very active. This woman traveled a lot, etc. So it still occurs. Risks are low and kind of insidiously sneak up on you. Can you talk a little bit about sort of the debates that have gone on about anthracyclines in the adjuvant setting for breast cancer, both in HER2-negative, HER2-positive disease? Well, I think in HER2-negative disease, we at least have data in lower-risk patients from at least one trial widely quoted, the U.S. Oncology Steve Jones trial comparing AC, standard classic AC every three weeks for four cycles, with docetaxel and cyclophosphamide. And in that trial, there's a superiority of about 5% or so in both relapse-free and overall survival. It's one trial. It's not a perfect trial. But even if one assumes that the survival benefit is due to chance, and it does have a significant p-value, I think it's safe to say that they would be equivalent. And so in patients who are lower risk, whose risks are not high, and therefore even a big proportional benefit translates in just a small absolute benefit, I think regimens like this have a place. I think in higher risk patients, such as those with multiple nodes, more aggressive tumors, that the anthracyclines are still alive. And I say that because we had the NSABP trial presented by Dr. Swain about a year or so ago that compared four cycles of TAC with AC followed by docetaxel, which was eight treatments, And in that trial, the four cycles of TAC were not as good as the A treatments. Now, maybe six are better than four or eight are better than six. But for whatever reason, the doses in that TAC trial are very similar to the TC trial. And the combined anthracycline followed by taxane therapy was superior. So I think that my take on it is for higher risk patients, I'm still an anthracycline fan. And when you do use anthracyclines in that situation, what regimen? 
Well, I'm a dose-dense advocate. I was involved in the trials that we did in CLGB in the intergroup. And so I use standard AC for four cycles with growth factor every two weeks. And then I use the paclitaxel dose-dense for four cycles every two weeks. So you're using growth factors with each one? Yes. I don't use it after the last dose of paclitaxel because I'm not worried about keeping people on cycle. And although I've heard anecdotal reports about not using growth factors for paclitaxel, I've yet to see any small or larger study that's looked at that and shown me the counts that you keep most people on cycle. So I tend to use it. How do you find patients tolerating the dose-dense regimen and also the growth factors? Well, I kind of think of the patients in two groups in dose-dense therapy. There are the patients with AC who kind of cruise through it. AC is a rather a metagenic regimen, and in the ASCO guidelines for antiemetics, it's not a moderate regimen. It's actually in the higher regimen, and you do need a prepidin and other antiemetics, and there's frequently some delayed emesis with it. But there's some people who cruise through it, and I find those people have a lot of problem with the paclitaxel because the paclitaxel is not as myelosuppressive. And so between the taxane arthralgia myalgia and the pegphilgrastum arthralgia myalgia, a lot of those patients really said, I thought the AC was supposed to really be rough on me, but boy, this is really much tougher. I'm fatigued. I ache for several days. Some people you have to start on narcotic-containing, you know, oxycodone, APAP combinations for a few treatments, so it can be rough. The other patients are the patients who get nailed with the AC. They get sick. They feel like hell. They have protracted nausea. When they come to the taxol portion, they're relieved. The little muscle aches and pains are nothing like the bad emesis they had. So I kind of think they fall into those two categories. What about side effects and also growth factors for that matter with TC? Well, I think that the most recent data we looked at would suggest that the incidence of neutropenic fever in women less than 65 is probably around 4% or so, and in women 65 and older is about 8%. But it's a clinical trial. So people tend to be healthier when they go in, probably had lesser comorbidity. And if we look at a lot of the data on risks of neutropenia in models such as Gary Lyman, age, comorbidity, performance status, et cetera, are all very important. So when you generalize that to patients who may be a little older or a little sicker, there's probably a substantial risk of neutropenic fever, at least in older patients. And I myself, having been burned a few times, have, when it's available, use growth factors in that setting of the TC setting in older patients. Getting back to the anthracycline issue, what do you say to a woman who's generally healthy, let's say around age 60, maybe a little bit of treated hypertension in terms of the risk? She turns around and says, well, what's the chance that because of taking this treatment, this anthracycline treatment, that I'm going to end up either with some kind of a significant heart problem or with leukemia? Yeah. So for the heart failure, I usually tell them the risk is about a half to 1% or so. And I think it's borne out by some long-term data that's been published based on clinical trials. If you look at some of the data that's come out of like the SEER Medicare database, it suggests heart failure may be higher. But the problem is that you don't have the fine-tuning of the information that you do on a trial. So I have more credibility with the trials that have been done. As far as leukemia, leukemia, like breast cancer, is a disease of aging. 
And the risk of leukemia is about 1% or so in people as they get into their 60s and 70s. I believe the real risk of anthracyclines in people as they get older is the leukemia more than the heart failure. And if you look in some of the large databases, it comes out to be between leukemia and myelodysplasia, you know, about 1% to 2%, including some very large SEER reviews. And I think that that's very important because if you go in and use adjuvant online or something and you're computing a survival benefit about a percentage point, and then there's leukemia and there's heart failure and other issues, it's kind of a washout. So I think that although it's not true in all studies, there's probably an interaction between the risk of leukemia, anthracyclines, and getting older. What about the anthracycline issue in the patient with a HER2-positive tumor? Yeah. Well, there we have a little bit more, perhaps, clinical trials data. We both saw Dr. Slayman's update of the BCIRG006, which compares standard therapy with AC and docetaxel with the same regimen and trastuzumab, or the TCH regimen, which in this case is docetaxel carboplatin and trastuzumab. And in the most recent update by Dr. Slayman, the data suggests that the TCH and the ACTH regimens are very similar, although in the relapse-free survival, there's a few percent difference. It's not significant. And I think, as Denny has pointed out to us, it really is empowered to look at all these groups, maybe to look at 3% differences, both superior to the ACT without Herceptin. In overall survival, that difference is only about a percentage point now between the TCH and ACTH. So I think for all practical purposes, TCH looks like a very effective regimen. The cardiac toxicity is less, but I recall in the trial, no one has died of heart failure. So the incidence of CHF is still very low. The incidence of left ventricular ejection declines is much higher when you measure them, probably for many reasons. One is variability in the measurement, for one, and certainly in these studies, virtually all studies, the LVEF declines with anthracycline look a little higher, but very little heart failure in his study. To me, there's a little bit of concern about the leukemia, but in looking at the data, I believe there were six patients with AML in the ACT arm, and there was only one in the ACTH arm. I don't know if that's real or due to chance. Numbers are too small. And then there was really a patient in the TCH arm, but there were some other issues who developed a leukemia. I think I said there was a previous lymphoma and Yeah, and treatment. was treated or something. Right, right. So I think it's probably a little bit of a less leukemogenic risk. But if you actually look at the ACTH arm in that study, you know, there's one patient with it. In the dose-dense trials of CALGB versus non-dose-dense, leukemia risk was about 0.7% leukemia and myelodysplasia. So there are concerns, and the non-anthracycline regimens may be a little bit better. In summary, I think using TCH is fine. I tend to be, uh, as we've talked about, still an anthracycline user in the higher-risk patients. I tend to, after seeing the San Antonio update by Dr. Perez, tend to give the trastuzumab with a paclitaxel. But I think based on the third presentation of the data from BCIRGO6, it's a very reasonable option. Let's talk a little bit about hormone therapy. And I asked if you could present a patient who had problems with an AI. So my most graphic patient that I could think of was a woman I took care of in Vermont. She was a woman who was actively working in her 50s. She was postmenopausal. She had chemotherapy for her breast cancer. And then I put her on an AI. 
So I was walking down the hallway. She worked in the medical center, and I saw her kind of limping. And I knew her very well. I said, oh, what, what happened? Did you get hurt or fall? She said, no, I've really been stiff and aching and limping. And she said, you know, my husband even had to carry me, help carry me into the car at the grocery store. And I was kind of shocked. And this was a few years ago before, you know, we saw the trials data on arthralgia, which weren't that high, but weren't starting to see all the community reports or didn't have the experience. And, you know, I had told her and I had provided her information, both verbally and written about arthralgia, myalgia, but she kind of didn't attribute it to the drug. And so I saw her and I stopped the drug. And within two, three weeks, she was like a new woman. And I believe I tried another aromatase inhibitor. And there is some data, at least short-term data, that if you switch, maybe half the patients will tolerate the second one a little bit better. I'm not sure they tolerate it better or they're afraid to tell you because you'll suggest stopping it and then they won't be getting their breast cancer therapy. So I'm not sure they're all feeling so good. And I suspect just the change over three months is not enough time to see the full potential intensity arthrogyomyalgia. But this woman got better. But that was really a graphic case. And like all docs now, I think this is the major side effect of the drug. We're great bone doctors. Maybe we're even doing good things by putting people on bisphosphonates for lower bone density. But I believe the arthralgia myalgia can be really profound. And now we're seeing reports with MRI showing tendonitis, trigger fingers, carpal tunnel syndrome, all types of things. So it's a very, very real issue. And I think we've really got to focus down on our patients to kind of find out the severity. And then I've not found anything that's great to treat it. NSAIDs, other things are minimally effective. I know there's some interest now in vitamin D and other stuff, but my own experience has been kind of doesn't work. And when people are having bad symptoms, you need to stop it. I usually say if we stop this and it's due to the drugs, because sometimes you get older people came in with arthritis and it's hard to tell. If you stop it, you should feel a lot better within two to three weeks if it's due to the drug. And then if they do, I'll change them over. And of course, going to tamoxifen is always an option in many of these patients. Not always an option, but frequently. And that rarely has the same degree of arthralgia myalgia, although it's been reported in some series. But now this woman actually did well in another AI. Right. Interesting. Now, your woman who had the arthralgias, did she have any other problems? She didn't. You know, I used to, when I first started using AIs, people came in with carpal tunnel. I couldn't believe how much carpal tunnel I was seeing. And now we're seeing that, you know, it certainly can be related to the AI use and things. She didn't have these, but one of the clues is morning stiffness. Like rheumatoid arthritis, we were taught in medical school, was morning stiffness. People got up, had to put their hands in the sink, get going to get any function. And I think a lot of the AI symptoms are very similar. And so I always ask about morning stiffness and things, but I can't recall it on this individual patient. There was a provocative paper a little bit over a year ago suggesting that women who had vasomotor symptoms and arthralgias with either tamoxifen or AIs tended to have fewer relapses, which sort of made sense. There was some data that came out in San Antonio that questioned it. What do you think about that issue? Yeah, you don't want to promulgate the no pain, no gain attitude. And so the initial AI data that suggested that there was an interaction of discomfort with better outcome, 
I believe Dr. Stearns, in reviewing what was the attack data, couldn't really show this. So I felt a little bit relieved. I think tamoxifen may be a little different. Tamoxifen in probably 5 to 10% of patients isn't metabolized appropriately to its active agent in doxifen. And the CYP2D6 issues are very hot. At San Antonio, I think a lot of wind was taken out of the sails when Dr. Getz, who has previously been one of the leaders showing it really matters in retrospective study, was unable in a big consortium study, even though there may be issues in the data, able to show that this was holding up. But others have shown that the really good metabolizers are the people who have either a lot of wild type of the enzyme, they metabolize drug to endoxifen, they have the worst toxicity. They also may have the worst compliance. So it's really a spinoff. They may get the best effect, but if more of those patients are less likely to take the meds in big trials, that could affect the trial outcome. I kind of think it may be truer with tamoxifen than AIs and wouldn't use that as surrogate for effectiveness, at least not with AIs. Another issue with endocrine therapy, specifically AIs, is bone. How did you approach bone in this woman and how in general do you approach it? So if a patient hasn't had a bone density within a year or so on going on the AI, I get a DEXA scan, bone density. And I must say that, you know, since the Austrian study group and other data, the recent data at San Antonio, I've tended to put people who have osteopenia, at least bad osteopenia, T-scores between minus 1.5 and minus 2, somewhere in that range, and minus 2.5, on a bisphosphonate drug in addition to vitamin D and calcium. So I think we've become very good bone doctors. I've, you know, like many of my oncology colleagues, have started to do vitamin D levels, Actually, my own GP did a vitamin D level on me and told me it was low, which shocked me. But I think a lot of people do have low vitamin D levels. Their relationship to breast cancer is intriguing, but I don't think etch in stone yet. Speaking of bone, I wanted to get into the issue of management of bone in the metastatic setting. Can you present your 67-year-old patient? Yeah, so I recently saw a patient who was a poor woman. She moved here from actually New York City to be with her family in North Carolina. And she hadn't had medical care for a long time and actually presented in New York, but was subsequently cared for up here with terrible back pain. And actually when she was examined in the emergency room, and I think it's a good pickup because I suspect a lot of people don't get breast exams in the emergency room, but they MRI'd her and she had a huge lytic defect in her lower T-spine and was found to have a big breast mass, neglected primary breast cancer. She hadn't had mammography. And she was in terrible pain. The tumor was near the cord, but she really didn't have any classic cord compression or any cord compression symptoms and was in terrible pain. She had hypercalcemia, probably around 12 or so. And so she was managed with pain medication, started on radiation therapy, had a breast biopsy, was an ER-positive tumor, And then subsequently, we put her on endocrine therapy alone, but was just in miserable pain. My experience is since the advent and wide use of bisphosphonates in the metastatic setting, that we're not admitting patients like we used to 10 and 15 years ago for terrible bone pain and narcotic infusions and things with breast cancer. You know, it'd be intriguing to look at the SEER Medicare database, you know, between 10 years ago and now to look and see how many admissions are for 
bone pain and breast cancer. My view now is we're much more cognizant of it. The bisphosphonates clinically certainly must retard it substantially, and we're not seeing this level of pain like this woman who was kind of a neglected primary cancer. And what was done, if anything, specifically to her spine? Well, it was debated whether to do an orthopedic procedure, but she didn't have any cord compression, and she had excellent function and strength. It was felt that we would radiate her first and see how she did with that. She actually did quite well, so we didn't do any type of intervention. Certainly, I think the randomized data would suggest if you saw a patient in this day and age with any cord lesion and they're in you know, reasonably good condition and they don't have you know, brain mets that are extensive, that getting the neurosurgeon involved immediately or the orthopedic surgeon, whichever is the person in your institution that specializes in this, that surgery is probably the preferred option in breast cancer. Now, I'm going to guess she got put on a bisphosphonate. Exactly, yeah. We started her in the hospital for our hypercalcemia on zolindronic acid and then are continuing it monthly. How did she tolerate it? She did well. You know, I think what's not appreciated by a lot of people is you can get a flu-like syndrome. I believe in the study we saw at San Antonio comparing it with denosumab was about 10% or so. But it really can be something. You've got to tell patients about it. There's some suggestion that those are the patients with low vitamin D levels that may have the fevers, the aches, the flu-like syndrome, but it can be substantial. She tolerated it just fine, but some people have trouble with it, and we're continuing her monthly. What's her current situation? So I saw her in the clinic, you know, probably about two weeks ago. She still was having pain, maybe a level of three of 10. It was pretty responsive to NSAIDs, and I want to tell everybody that NSAIDs are still, you know, Naproxen, ibuprofen are still great drugs for bone pain because I frequently see the residents and people come in and they've never been tried on these simpler drugs. And she may have been taking, you know, oxycodone, APAP for breakthrough, you know, once or twice a day. She was reasonably comfortable. We had gotten her some home physical therapy, which is very important, especially with older people to keep them moving and active. And her breast, which is a great marker of her response, you know, was getting a little bit softer. She had a virtually a total breast infiltrated by tumor. Now, you mentioned denosumab. Can you talk a little bit about what we know in terms of the mechanism of action, how it's administered, and how it seems to be comparing to zoledronic acid? So denosumab is a monoclonal antibody that reacts with the rank ligand. So the rank ligand is a small molecule that reacts with osteoclasts and leads to higher bone turnover and bone loss. And so the nanosumab complexes with the ligand and prevents the osteoclast activation. And so it's a monoclonal antibody. We just had a really nice comparative trial presented at San Antonio comparing denosumab and zolindronic acid. The denosumab is given subcutaneously, which might be a little bit more user-friendly. And in this trial, it looked as effective, if perhaps not more effective. It actually statistically was a little bit more effective at bone events. It didn't seem to have the flu-like syndrome. Surprisingly to me, it had about the same amount of osteonecrosis of the jaw, which is everybody's fear in bisphosphonates. I don't know how it is in Miami, Neil, but you know, you get on late night TV here and you know, we have one ad after the other. Do you have osteonecrosis? you know, call this number. And it was about a percent or two for both agents. 
you know, I'd love to see a study following a thousand women with breast cancer with bone mats, not on bisphosphonates, which probably will never happen, to see do many of them get osteonecrosis anyway. But it looked pretty low and it was a manageable complication. What about renal dysfunction? What do you see with denosumab and what's been your experience with zoledronic acid? Yeah, you know, it's a concern, but I think in clinical practice, it's been very rare to see any major renal problems with zolandronic acid. I have not been involved personally using denosumab trials. We're interested in learning more about the drug and having access to the drug. I adjust zolandronic acid by creatinine clearance per the package insert. Today, most labs, when you do serum creatinine, will you know, send you back the clearance. And if you have a good electronic setup, you can kind of calculate it in. Maybe it matters to reduce the dose a little for poor clearance. But that being said, a lot of docs don't do it, don't measure serum creatinine before each dose, and the patients seem to do just fine. So I don't think it's a major issue. And to my knowledge, there haven't been any major issues with denosumab either. What about the duration of using bisphosphonates and maybe in the future denosumab, particularly a patient who's stable, maybe after a couple of years, a patient who maybe has only one or two bone mets? Are there any sort of shades of that concept? Oh, absolutely. I mean, the trial that we were in in Vermont, where after a year of monthly Zomata, which is kind of what most people are doing, Patients were randomized to every three months or continuing the monthly. And I don't know, you know, so obviously there's a big bias in that trial because to get out a year and be well enough to worry about changing your Zomata means that your Mets are probably doing reasonably well. So that trial is in progress. You know, certainly we know now that zolandronic acid, when it's sold under the name Reclass for osteoporosis and it's five milligrams instead of four milligrams, it works for a year you know, in managing osteoporosis. So I suspect when you have bone mats, you know, have more cytokines and the tumor is making, God knows what it's making, rank ligand, other cytokines, interleukins that break down bone, maybe you need a little bit more. But, you know, I'm not sure if you couldn't get by with every three months or, you know, every six months of Zomata, certainly with AIs and the ZFAST trial and the ZOFAST trial, Every six-month therapy has been extremely effective in preventing bone loss. So I think looking at the interval would be of interest. And the other thing, I don't think every patient with bone mats, this may be heresy, needs Zomata. So if you see a patient who's got bone mats with one or two lesions that are sclerotic and having absolutely no pain, you know, in pulmonary mats, there's no data from the registration or other trials that you live longer going on bisphosphonates. Now, maybe if you have very high bone turnover, Alan Lipton and others have shown there may be a subset of people who do live longer. But unlike myeloma and breast cancer, as a group, you don't live longer. So to me, a patient who has sclerotic mets and not lytic mets, and there are some breast cancer patients just with sclerotic mets, may not need to be put right on Zomata every month for treatment of their bone mats. What about the patient who's onzomated for metastatic disease and has a skeletal event like a fracture? Do you continue the zomata? Yeah, I have. You know, it's like there's always the question, what would have happened if they weren't on it? You know, which you never can go back and answer. So maybe it's preventing other skeletal events as well. It might be worthwhile in that patient to look at a general bone density again, 
you know, just to make sure that the drug is doing the job because there are other options for bone health, such as calcitonin and other things that can be helpful. But I've tended to keep those patients on, I think there are few patients now, but I've tended to keep them on the drug. If and when denosumab becomes available, how do you see it being utilized initially in breast cancer? Well, I guess the package insert, you know, initially will be for metastatic disease. You know, it may be a little bit more effective, although when you look at the outcome measures, to me, it wasn't four plus. Cost is going to be a big issue. This is a new era of costs. I don't know how it'll compare to zolindranic acid, which to my knowledge won't be long till it comes off patent. I think there are some nice things that it doesn't require IV therapy. So if you're managing a patient, and as we don't have as many oncologists per capita cancer patient and infusion rooms are tougher, having a sub-Q shot, which I think a lot of primary care or other docs would be willing to give as opposed to an IV shot, you're not going to get a primary care doc probably in a small practice to give intravenous anything in their office that it may be more user-friendly for those patients, probably could be self-injected for people. So I think it'll fit into the metastatic setting. I think we'd like to see long-term data on toxicities and on major skeletal-related events, but I think it might find a good niche. Last thing I want to ask you about is your one of your passions, which is oncology for older people. You were talking before about using adjuvant chemo in the older patient. What about using chemo for metastatic disease? And where we hear a lot of questions is not the 65 and 70-year-old, but the 85 and 90 and 90-plus-year-old. Yeah. How do you approach the issue, particularly of myelosuppression and other chemotoxicities? I don't know how often you treat patients like that, but a lot of times your hand is sort of forced. Sure. You know, I think there are a lot of kinder, gentler chemotherapy regimens for older people. So I think the first thing we always need to sit back and say, what are we giving the patient chemotherapy for? So we're either treating some symptoms that we think we can improve, or at least if they're not symptomatic, trying to control a tumor that if it has another doubling is going to cause major symptoms. And I think that there are a lot of things that can be done in older people. I mean, I'm a fan of capecitabine because it's a pill. My feeling is we don't know the ideal dose of capecitabine. You know, we have the package insert dose, which probably no one uses, of 2,500 per meter square. On the streets, if you write a study or something, you're usually using 2,000. And I'm not even sure we know what the 5-FU equivalent is for that drug. I've treated people like with 500 BID and seen responses so I think in an older person who's minimally symptomatic, I tend to start at a lower dose and work my way up. Although not proven in a randomized trial, I also like the seven-day on, seven-day off schedule because my feeling is it's a little less toxic. I can't prove that. I'd love to see a phase three trial. I don't know if we'll ever have one versus the two weeks on, one week off versus week on, week off. So I think that's a nice user-friendly drug. I also think weekly taxanes in older people are generally well tolerated. You have to monitor carefully for neuropathy, but you're not likely to have any problems with a metagenesis or anything with weekly taxanes. And you can start at a slightly smaller dose. You can start at 60 or 70. You're in no rush. You can start at 50. If the LFTs are a little high, take your time. Most of these patients are people you're going to be following, and you have a little bit of time to start slowly and build your way up. I'm always nervous about starting at a big dose, getting profound toxicity, and then the patient will not 
be willing to try any more chemotherapy. And after all, you're trying to control their symptoms, not worry about a response rate that might be important in a clinical trial. So I think the taxanes are good. I think doxel, liposomal doxorubicin, which can be given every four weeks. There was just a very nice paper by Maureen Trudeau in the JCO looking at doxel and cyclophosphamide as initial therapy in patients who had had all prior anthracyclines. And it was very tolerable. They had some hand-foot syndrome, which was a concern, but very tolerable. I think single agents, they're not all FDA-approved, like gemcitabine, vinarelbine, given judiciously, can be worth a try. I have no experience in older people with ixabepilone. The weekly schedule seems reasonably tolerated. But I think using these kindler gentler weekly schedules, being very vigilant to monitor for toxicity or capecitabine, that there are options. And there are actually papers in the literature with weekly doxorubicin, 20 milligrams, no per meter square, giving it weekly, that show really nice responses, not only in breast, but in things like prostate cancer. And we often overlook them, and they're pretty safe and very user-friendly. So I think if you've got a patient irrespective of any age who's really symptomatic from their breast cancer, whether it's bony mets or pulmonary mets or a big liver, or if they just grow a little bit, they're going to have a major problem, that I would consider them for chemotherapy and monitor them closely for toxicity. But I think there are a lot of options out there. When you are using myelosuppressive therapy, how do you use growth factors in older people? So, you know, I usually don't use them de novo, and I should have added to that low-dose cyclophosphamide methotrexate, which has been published by the European group, Colioni, actually Aaron Goldhirsch is a co-author, you know, has reasonable, they're kind of gentle PO therapies. As far as growth factors, where I've used them is occasionally you'll try several things, and the patient, as we get older, our marrow reserve isn't as good. So you might want to get Let's say you try something like vinarelbine, and the counts really go down, or you get an episode of neutropenic fever. And some of those, maybe utilizing things like filgrastum for a few days, can really keep the patient's counts up and help them. I don't think there's a lot of need for it in this group of patients, but occasionally a patient you may have on a regimen that's helpful, but their counts are down, and you know you bring them to the clinic, and you can't treat them, and they're old, and they got to go home, and their daughter's got to bring them back the next week. Getting a few days of growth factors can be very, very helpful. What about ESAs? How do you utilize them? Oh, I think like all of us, you know, they've kind of dropped like a stone in use. I think, you know, in the adjuvant setting, I'm nervous because I'm sitting with, you know, the FDA and other people telling me they may worsen survival. And I think that's a very delicate position to be in, even though I'm not convinced that the data that have led to that conclusion was such great trials. No offense to my friends. I think in the metastatic setting, if anemia and fatigue are a major problem of the patient's symptoms, they're reasonable to use because they can be very devastating quality of life symptoms. And those patients, the breast cancer is threatening their survival directly at that point.